welcome to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Dr. Sarah Wright. We're bringing you a special episode with our guest, Dr. Jane Manfredi. Jane, we are so excited to speak with you today. Jane is an Assistant Professor in Pathobiology and Diagnostic Investigation at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine. In this episode, we're going to talk about Jane's manuscript, a One Health Lens offers new perspectives on the importance of endocrine disorders in the equine athlete and a One Health approach to identifying and mitigating the impact of endocrine disorders on human and equine athletes. Dr. Manfredi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, well, let's dive right in. Endocrine disorders are important to address in both people and animals. What new information can our readers learn from your manuscripts to better serve their patients and their clients? Thanks. I I think the biggest take-home point is that horses and humans both suffer from similar endocrine disorders um, and that endocrine disorders affect about 20% of each of those populations. And these disorders have similar consequences and each species can really learn from the research that has been done and continues to be done in the other. Um, Because endocrine disorders are really commonly seen in clinical practice, veterinarians and human medical doctors both are in a unique position to be able to share the information to hopefully improve health outcomes and really embody the idea of that one health approach. What are common misconceptions about endocrinopathies and what is the role of the veterinarian in addressing these misconceptions and educating their clients and the general public? So I think the most common misconception is that in regards to endocrinopathies in the horse, that the only sequela that we have to worry about is laminitis. Um, so laminitis is a devastating disease um, where we have the coffin bone in the foot rotating, rotating downwards through the horse's soul, which could be um, career or life ending. Um, however, there are other issues that we can see with endocrine diseases that we also have to worry about. So some examples are the low-grade inflammatory state associated with obesity, cardiovascular fitness, and multiple different types of lameness. So some examples of those types of lameness that veterinarians should also be concerned about in their patients that have endocrine disorders are um, issues with tendon and ligament injury, uh, in particular, the hind limbs dispensary ligament degeneration, which affects a lot of horses, um, but is particularly devastating in our dressage horse population, um, has shown to be more of an issue with horses that have PPID or Cushing's disease. Um, Similarly, horses uh, with that condition also suffer muscle loss. Um, And that could be along the top line, which can affect saddle fit, um, but it can also affect joint stability, contributing to the development of osteoarthritis. Uh, And in horses, one thing my lab is particularly interested in now is looking to see if there's actually uh, a type of osteoarthritis that's not been described before in horses, but has been in humans, uh, which is metabolic osteoarthritis. And so a lot of these conditions have human counterparts, um, and we're just really starting to identify them in horses. Other parts of endocrine disease that we don't think about commonly is issues with mare infertility. So when we're trying to breed equine athletes, if we have issues with breeding the best mares, uh, that can cause problems in preventing their genetics to be passed along to their offspring. Uh, And further, we've had some recent work in my lab that shows placental dysfunction, which is also seen in humans with type 2 diabetes, can lead to developmental orthopedic diseases such as OCD and foals. Uh, There's also concern that if foals behave in the same way as human babies do, that if mothers have uh, type 2 diabetes or the metabolic syndrome equivalent in horses, that there might be higher rates of mortality and morbidity in those foals due to sepsis and conditions such as neonatal maladjustment syndrome. 
Um, from a standpoint of other common misconceptions, um, I'd like to state that thyroid disease, although important in humans, is normally not as much a critical issue in horses. And in fact, one of the common medications administered to increase thyroid hormone production can cause arrhythmias in our equine athletes and so should be avoided. Uh, and the last common myth that I hear expressed um, or an area where there's some confusion is when people conflate the idea of PPID and EMS together. So these are two separate endocrine disorders and they can happen concurrently in the same horse. We do know when they happen together that it leads to worse outcomes, um, but they are two separate endocrine conditions. I think the veterinarian's role in, it is a challenging one in this area to be able to explain how the complexities of the endocrine system can affect so many parts of the body. Conveying the degree to which obesity is often associated with endocrine disorders and how it can have negative impacts on the horse and human health is really a difficult topic, but an important one to breach with owners. Um, it's uh, also a topic that needs to be broached within the equine industry as a whole, uh, because some recent work has shown that judges are more likely to pin overweight and obese ponies, for example, in competitions. So another area where veterinarians can really help our clients um, is in helping owners to recognize milder signs of laminitis. Um, so in a recent study done with some authors of mine here at MSU, uh, it was indicated that close to 70, 75% of owners were actually unable to recognize laminitis was occurring in their own horses. Uh, and so part of that is educating clients on how to properly do body condition scoring of their animals so they can better judge when they are really overweight or obese, um, as opposed to just believing they're very well muscled. Also, veterinarians have a really key role in this area, I think, to work with and alongside human medical doctors as collaborators to tackle this really challenging problem of endocrine disorders and their secondary related obesity. Um, and so I think there's a real area here where we can have this collaboration, particularly when looking at different treatments, um, preventative therapies, and other interventions. Um, and so, you know, one area where they can work together is potentially looking at efficacy of therapies. And so um, recently, there's a promising drug for both humans and horses uh, that has been looking at actually um, altering kidneys' ability to absorb sugar from the urine. Um, so as a result, glucose is eliminated from the body. And so we don't have those spikes in insulin that are so critical um, and key when we're worried about causing laminitis in horses. One other point, which I think is a real area where veterinarians and human medical doctors can collaborate, is this idea of expanding precision medicine within both fields and in both species. And so a lot of my papers were dedicated to talking about multi-omic analyses, uh, which is an area where we can really rely upon the veterinarians and the clinicians in the field to help us generate um, data and tissue subsets that could help guide looking at these omic analyses to identify potential future, um, even more efficacious and safe therapies in our horses and humans with these conditions. Yeah, thank you, Jane. Uh, you know, I've, I have been an equine surgeon for more than 30 years in academia. And, you know, I, I would say I fell into that category early on too, that if it wasn't hairy or laminitic, it didn't have a anything wrong with its endocrine system. And even walking alongside of one of my good friends in medicine and I can't, the horse was overweight and I had turfed it to her in medicine. And I said to the owner, you know, the horse doesn't need any grain, but no horse ever died of carrot toxicity. And my medicine colleague pulled me aside and was like, hang on a minute. That's like a <laughs> bomb. And they're going to go feeding like, and I'm guilty of feeding my horse 
uh, a lot of carrots too. And I, I ride hunters and I can say the same thing is true there that, you know, my mother yeah. would have called my horse well covered, which means he's a little bit chubby. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but if you have a lithe looking horse, then it, it doesn't fit into the paradigm and not all that different than dog shows. And it's, it's tough in, in, in educating the industry is going to be difficult. And and to speak to that point for a couple of things that you made me think of that are, I think, really useful for clients is that there are definitely a population of horses that are actually, you know, very fit, have a good, you know, body weight and body condition that are still potentially horses that suffer from insulin dysregulation issues. And so that's why if we have any of the confounding factors such as breed, you know, for example, we know Arabians, Morgans, Tennessee walking horses, draft and pony breeds are really prone to having equine metabolic syndrome. Um, I think it's really important to get um, baseline dynamic testing values of these animals to really see where they are to make sure you don't have a problem or won't soon have a problem. So that's a really important preventative medicine step that I think clinicians should recognize that the animal might be more at risk and it should be addressed. Um, and the the second thing I do appreciate that um, you know horses don't need to have in many cases grain to be able to do their job. Um, and so a uh, good quality hay is very often adequate. The one concern that we've seen kind of popping into concern lately is that um, some of the ration balancers that are being fed are really high in protein levels. So even though you're not feeding a lot, you're still feeding high protein. Um, and some recent work by another group has shown that that high level of protein can sometimes spike insulin as well. So in, in truth, some of these animals might really be best served by having um, just a like a vitamin mineral powder mix top dressed on some of their hay versus a ration balancer by itself. Really, really good point. The ration balancer is out of control with Smart Pack and many of the other uh, feed companies and other supplements. I, I totally agree with that. I think it's interesting that you mentioned baseline values. You read my mind when I was thinking that, you know, would it be something to work with the AAAP to get that on the recommended list for your year, for those breeds or the age of the horse or a body condition score? then you recommend that they do baseline testing. Would that be like sure. most people go to the AAP, what should I do every year for vaccinations and that sort of thing? Do you think that would be something to try and work with them? I think that would be um, an excellent opportunity. So right now, a lot of the uh, veterinarians that work and do research in the endocrine world um, kind of contribute our best clinical practices, um, which is accumulated actually on uh, Tufts Equine Endocrinology site. Um, and so that's a place where we actually have some of the recommendations for what we uh, would recommend veterinarians do and follow. Um, but I do agree that AAP definitely has more of a visibility issue, especially amongst owners as well. Um, and so I wanted to clarify one further thing is that when we're talking about baseline values in the horse, um, we're not just talking about fasted that you take first thing in the morning in most cases as being our best diagnostic screening test for these conditions. So for equine metabolic syndrome, particularly, we actually right now clinically prefer to do an oral sugar test, um, which is a kind of what we call a dynamic challenge test. So what I mean by that is that we take a resting baseline sample of blood. We'll give the horse uh, a large dose of um, caro syrup. Yep. Just like you would use in your, your pies and cakes. Uh, and then we'll pull blood 60 and 90 minutes later to see how high their insulin response goes. Um, and why we do this is because my work and that of others has shown that if you just look at that fasting baseline sample, you can miss up to 95% of the horses that actually have metabolic disease. Um, similarly, in 
discussions about the best treatment for PPID or Cushing's. Um, the recommended test right now is a TRH stimulation test, where we actually, again, take baseline blood. We'll give uh, the TRH hormone intravenously, and 10 minutes later, pull blood again to measure for ECTH values. Uh, that test is a little bit trickier in that between July and December, um, it's really not as well established as far as what normals are. But um, at other points in the times of the year, it can also sometimes show you if a horse is um, just borderline Cushing's, you can be able to determine that by seeing those results. Yeah, really, really good clinical information for our listeners. And for me, thank you. Um, what what inspired your love of endocrinopathies and, and then to, uh, thankfully for us, write this manuscript for JAVMA and AJVR? Okay. So, so a horse owner and dressage rider since I was very young, my research has been driven by my own experience with my own horses and the stumbling blocks I've often encountered while trying to keep them happy and sound for competition. So when I was 10, I had a Welsh pony named Chablis, who I loved, and we competed in pony club and dressage. And one spring day, I went out to ride, and she refused to walk out of her stall, which is really uncharacteristic for her. Um, so I had my veterinarian out, Dr. Norm Chattel, one of my big mentors, uh, and he diagnosed her with having a lam laminitis, acute laminitis. So we tried all manner of treatments, um, and, you know, ironically... At the time, we didn't actually sand her in ice water, which is a, a mainstay of treatment for endocrine diseases and laminitis currently, uh, but many other things. But ultimately, we couldn't control her pain, um, and we did have to humanely euthanize her. Um, so that prompted my initial interest in endocrine diseases in the horse as a, a really pivotal moment in my youth. Um, when I continued to ride throughout high school and beyond, um, I also had a lot of horses that had issues with osteoarthritis. And, you know, I had to spend a lot of time being able to manage them appropriately to keep them comfortable. So when I did my surgery residency, um, I was working with Dr. Troy Trumbull, and I had focused a lot of my work on joint biomarkers and horses that were treated with intraarticular steroids, uh, which is a common therapy to keep them very comfortable when they have osteoarthritis. And I was fortunate enough to be able to present my research at a human osteoarthritis conference called ORSI. Uh, and when I was there, I was going to attend multiple levels of talks, and I heard a discussion or a presentation on metabolic osteoarthritis in humans. And I think that was like the big light bulb moment for me when I realized there was a true connection between endocrine disease and orthopedic disorders. Um, so I decided then to pursue a, pursue a PhD in equine metabolic syndrome here at MSU. And then since then, I've really focused my research at that intersection between orthopedic and endocrine disorders with a particular interest in athletes be them human horses or dogs. Um, and that was kind of the impetus for this paper and evaluating this area, which I think has been very underserved in the past. Yeah, thank you. I, I met you at that Orsi conference. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Orsi is a great conference. Um, I don't I didn't even remember that. I'm so sorry. I should have remembered that. I was kind of a deer in headlights at that conference, quite honestly. <laughs> so It's a pretty big one. I came, yeah, you and Troy had a poster there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you were to give a couple pieces of advice to others that are trying to emulate your success, you could feel your passion and with Chablis from a 10-year-old, which is pretty fascinating. You had a long way to go from a 10-year-old. <laughs> um, but what, what couple pieces of advice would you give to our listeners that are trying to emulate? Okay. So I first just have to recognize that I, I've grown up in a great place of privilege. So I was able to have and be involved with horses from a very young age. Um, and that, you know, has definitely contributed to my passion and success. But I think that 
recognizing your passion. So reflecting and recognizing what's very important to you and then um, working towards that as a goal, as well as developing a, a decent amount of grit to be able to chase those goals down are really important contributors to success for, for anyone, not just myself. Um, and I also think that not being able to, like not being afraid to ask for help from those you know as well from those you don't is important. So um, I didn't realize I actually wanted to do research or advanced training or work in academia until I was looking for a summer job after vet school in my first year. And I actually um, cold emailed Dr. Hillary Clayton, who was at MSU at the time. Um, I was familiar with her work because of her research in dressage and thought that seems like a great way to spend the summer. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of magical that people came together and allowed me to enter that program, even though I was not a MSU veterinary student. Um, and so, you know, from that point on, you know, I was in an environment where if I needed help here or a pony here or a horse here or, um, you know, a radiologist to help take some, um, you know, moving images of the horse's mouth to look at bits, which is what I was doing that summer, um, I was able to find it. And so um, it took a lot of strength to be able to ask when I was in a position to like not really offer anyone much of anything. And I love the veterinary community because we step up. And so I would really encourage, um, you know, veterinarians or students or students considering veterinary medicine to realize that it is a, you know, a field where we are very welcoming and are very willing to help um, where we can. So I, from that experience, I, you know, made a 10 year plan um, and then was able to come back to MSU at the end of it. So that one summer and that one cold email changed the course of my career. That's amazing. And I can resonate with that too. As a vet student, I attended a conference and I went to the University of Illinois, but I found someone from North Carolina State University who actually supported me for my first research project. So it's always amazing how people are willing to jump out there and help even when like you said, you don't have much to give to them, quite honestly, but it's just nice to have people help you jumpstart your career and believe in you and support you. So your resume is very impressive. You're a diplomat of both the American College of Veterinary Surgery and the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. You also have a postgraduate certificate in veterinary medical education. How have all these experiences changed your perspective on One Health? I like to think that my different view, viewpoints are a strength, and they also include the PhD in a medicine field, which does make some of the surgeons uh, think twice when they talk to me. But um, I think essentially that is a reflection on the One Health approach. And so it's very much how we can look at human and horse health from different lenses. And I love to look at problems by like transitioning between these lenses. So am I the surgeon? Am I the sports medicine rehab specialist? Am I the endocrinologist? Um, and then converging those lenses together. So they've definitely allowed me to see connections between what some might consider to be disparate areas. Um, <laughs> but I also think it's just important to be able to spread the knowledge. And so that's where my interest in teaching um, and my postgraduate certificate therein really allows me to reach multiple um, levels of audiences. So I'm able to really exponentially uh, increase awareness of my research through incorporating that into the classes that I teach for the veterinary students. Um, however, I also share it at veterinary conferences, um, local and national, and I'm also very involved in outreach educational events with owners um, as well. So I, I think that that training in teaching is really vital to helping the message get out to multiple people and have the biggest effect on the horse welfare and human too. 
I love that you give back to the community in that way. It's really nice to turn around and thank the people that have helped you and then to also share the knowledge, like you said, because it's one thing to do the work, but it's another thing to share the knowledge. And that's actually why I do this podcast is to get this information out there and to raise awareness too. Yes, I appreciate very much you guys asking me to do this. So I think it's fantastic. And it's another avenue that I haven't been involved in before. And I think it's a great way um, to reach out to individuals. My cousin was just telling me and talking about the podcast and was very excited when she heard I was going to be doing one. So you'll have to tell your cousin to listen (laughs) and follow us on all major streaming platforms. So we'd be (laughs) happy to share the knowledge. (laughs) Perfect. So if a veterinarian were about to meet a client, what is the one piece of information they should know about endocrine disorders in the equine athlete? So we should be assessing our equine athletes for endocrine diseases with dynamic testing more regularly, especially if they have risk factors such as breed or increasing age, and then combine the results we get from those tests with our clinical signs to be able to make the best recommended preventative medicine strategies to ensure their long-term health and athleticism. Well, thank you again, Jane, for writing these amazing manuscripts. Your uh, your ability to get it through in a very understandable way it surely reflects your ability as an educator. So thank you again. What We turn to a little bit more of a personal side right now and want to know what is the best piece of advice someone has given you? It could be a piece of life advice. It doesn't necessarily have to be veterinary medicine or endocrine related, but what's the one piece of advice that you might repeat to somebody. So in my primary school, we had a motto and that motto was actions, not just words. So that still resonates with me today. So I think there's many challenges in medicine and research and society that can be overcome if individuals can take positive, active steps towards improving the world we live in for both ourselves and our animals. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you again for joining us. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and learning more about your career, your passion, and also your manuscript too in endocrinopathies and equine athletes. Thank you. You can read Jane's manuscripts in JAVMA and AJVR on our journal's website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Until next time, take care and we'll see you soon.